Hi. Well, about a week ago, uh, my good friend and brother in the Lord, Brendan Kraft of priestandgrace.org, made a video titled uh, Abiding the Apostles' Doctrine, I believe. And, uh, and it was devoted, the video was devoted to uh, an important uh, question, or maybe even set of questions around the theme of uh, how to define the boundaries of Christian fellowship. Um, what teachings of Scripture are to be considered as, as absolutely vital, essential, sine qua non, you know, that uh, you absolutely have to hold, and if you don't, um, you know, you're outside of the pale of uh, Christian fellowship. And, and things that are to be considered as secondary issues that we can kind of uh, disagree and, you know, and have a little uh, kind of loose territory that uh, we can debate things, but still not to break fellowship over. And so basically, what are the primary uh, issues or articles of faith and what are the secondary and how to rightly discern between them. So that was the theme of Brandon's uh, uh, video and he did a good job on, on trying to kind of uh, discuss and set forth uh, what he thinks uh, uh, our stance should be and uh, what the hills uh, are worth dying on and what hills we shouldn't be dying on, at least not immediately. And, uh, and he uh, said something about the creeds in that video, which uh, also kind of you know, triggered my attention. And uh, <clears throat> he says, uh, uh, people say, well, if you want to talk about uh, how to define the boundaries of our faith, things to believe, I mean, the easy answer is go to the creeds. And the creeds will tell you. So you go to one of the historical uh, uh, creeds or confessions, especially Reformation era, uh, either, you know, Reformed Presbyterian creeds or, uh, be it London Baptist, uh, Confession of 1689 or so, some other, uh, some other document. Uh, but Brandon says, no, the creeds aren't the answer. And he gives reasons uh, for that. Uh, and I agree. Uh, creeds can be, and he says that creeds are very restrictive. Uh, and sometimes un unnecessarily restrictive in areas where you, they shouldn't be uh, so restrictive. Uh, and that's that's true. I mean, and I say that as a uh, at least semi-critical guy, because, I mean, even more than semi-critical, I'm a critical, broadly speaking. You know, I come from a Reformed background, and to this day, I mean, if you ask me about my where I stand, broadly speaking, and... I could say that the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort and the uh, uh, the Belgian Confession, the so-called three forms of unity, is where I stand, more or less, even though there are certain caveats. There are some points in which I feel much closer or feel more at home with particular Baptists or hyper-Calvinist tradition. I've been branded as, as a hyper-Calvinist, but that's another topic for another day. I, I'm actually intending to make a video maybe serious on why I'm considered I'm considered to be Calvinist, a hyper-Calvinist, and, and that's okay, and why I think it's, it's even justified to be a hyper-Calvinist. But for now, uh, I'm a critical person myself. I mean, I've talked through Heidelberg Catechism a few times, 
and the canons of Dort as well. So I kind of started those documents and with in Westminster standards, I started them earlier in my Christian life. So I'm, I'm kind of in the know. Uh, I know what I'm talking about. And uh, the way I see the creeds and confessions, they, kind of, they can be very edifying. They can help you grow. But their place is similar to the place of Christian apologetics. You know, the Christian apologetics, be it uh, presuppositionalism or evidentialism or, you know, if you use the traditional arguments for the existence of God, you know, Thomistic arguments and so forth, they can be helpful for a believer to realize that our faith is a reasonable faith. And an apologetics kind of makes you think about issues. And, and that's good. And ultimately, it sends you back to the Bible, which is always good, you know, as you think through different issues and so on. But you don't, you know, using the uh, modern terminology, you don't win people to Christ by using apologetics. I don't think, you know, it's, it's the living in the body and word of God. It is through this Word that the Holy Spirit uh, converts people, um, regenerating them first and then giving them ears to hear, to heed the things that you proclaim in the gospel. And it's through the foolish, foolishness of the gospel that people are brought to the saving knowledge. It's not, it's not apologetics, okay? So the creeds are kind of like that, okay? They edify you, they kind of, oh, you know, this is a very good definition and so forth. But ultimately, you got to go to the Bible to check this up, to see if these things are so. And uh, in a very easy illustration, which shows that uh, the place of the creeds is very limited, is uh, when you have to deal with persons outside of your uh, particular camp. I mean... When talking to uh, free will Baptists or Pentecostals or Charismatics or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and whatnot, you know, dealing with uh, all sorts of uh, people, even outside Christianity. I mean, if you quote to them the Heidelberg Catechism, you know, Heidelberg Catechism says this or the Canons of Dor says that and so forth, they'll say what? And rightly so, you know, it's... What are you talking about? You can't establish anything by, by just uh, alluding to a, uh, another document. I mean, they also have their own traditions. So, I mean, we can just, you know, discuss different traditions. They won't, won't get anywhere. you got to appeal to the only source of truth, infallible truth, and uh, which is the Holy Scriptures, you know. So, all truth... All knowledge comes from the Word of God so that, uh, you know, your appeals to the creeds won't do, won't cut it. Okay, so that's that concerning the creeds. Um, they kind of help you grow, but, uh, you know, and, and they're also, in, in many ways, uh, super explicit. On, on things that uh, most believers, especially today, um, don't have even time to study carefully. And if you don't study for yourself, 
you can't really, uh, and you shouldn't hold to something as, as true if you don't know it to be so. You know, for instance, you know, there are some statements about uh, the civil authorities and the relationship between the church and the early reformed creeds kind of emphasize that the civil magistrates are to even guard the church and, uh, and uh, they're to be conducive for the propagation of the gospel. And, and it's just, boy, most people today won't agree with those principles. In, in point of fact, reformed churches themselves repudiated those teachings over time. But there are some theonomists today who say, well, that, that, that yes, that's how it should be. The civil magistrates are to be gardeners of the true religion and so on. And uh, so creeds sometimes create confusion. And, and churches have made amendments in their own creeds, thereby showing that, boy, they're not that perfect. You know, we got to change a few things in them. So their place, I believe there is a place for creeds, basically, so that you don't have to invent a bicycle every time. So the five solace of the Reformation are helpful, and the creeds can be helpful, but their place is limited. So that that's that on that issue. And at the end, I wanted to add something on a different topic. I made a video yesterday, which was kind of a sequel to something that I recorded a couple of days prior to that, and it was about uh, God's immutability and how it relates to our assurance. It has very practical implications that God changes not. And, and I said something about that, that the reason that we're not consumed, uh, according to Malachi 3.6, was that uh, because God changes not, he is immutable. He is the eternal I am. Therefore, we're not consumed. Even though I said that our God is a consuming fire. So I made a statement that God is eternally a burning, uh, consuming fire. So he's wrathful towards sin at the same time because of Christ. And we being in him, we're not consumed. Because he takes that hate of God's eternal wrath against sin. And uh, a friend of, of mine, a good brother, uh, PM'd me via Facebook and said, Look, um, I have a hard time believing that God has everlasting wrath. So that he's uh, kind of, you know, that his wrath is eternal. And I said, well, that's a good question. You know, I kind of... I. When I was making that statement, uh, you know, my uh, video yesterday, I was thinking about eternity, eternity future, a future eternity with this uh, dimension that we know that the lake of fire and the judgment of the wicked shall continue on. And some folks will disagree even with that, but uh, I believe that uh, it's pretty much just as the heaven... Uh, and uh, and eternal bliss is is everlasting in the same way the damnation of the wicked and the lake of fire and the torment will uh, will continue it's a hard thought to swallow but we know that the bible speaks of it pretty clearly at least to me 
so that uh, we know that his his wrath shall continue. Uh, what about his wrath when there was nothing as yet, when it was just God? We talk about his love being everlasting because God in himself is love. And within the Holy Trinity, this love has always existed. Okay, that's fairly easy for us to understand. But what about the wrath? I mean, against whom would it be directed if there was no no sin, no you know, no no creation as yet in eternity past? We're talking so that's a that's a good question. And my answer, my best shot is that just as his love is towards us from everlasting. So he loved us before, you know, everything was brought forth and so forth in Christ. So if you can have that perspective in the same, it, we're still creatable and fallible and not even as, as beings in a, in a full sense of the word. You know, we kind of, he saw us of all eternity and loved us at the same time, he loved us in Christ, who's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, if, as, as it, you know, is in Revelation 13. Now, if Christ is viewed as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, there's a reason why he's uh, pictured that way. Well, because of sin. And uh, here's another thought. God is light, and in him is no darkness. Now, his shining light, which is shining of his glory, it is good for us because it is his light. But that same light, that same sun of righteousness, is also a burning, scorching heat for the wicked. We will be playing in that light. We will be rejoicing. As those calves in Malachi 4, you know, that the righteous shall rejoice and, you know, be kind of joyful and moving in that, in that light. But under the same rays, the wicked shall burn. So it's kind of says God is everlasting. All of his attributes and perfections are everlasting. And I guess there's even a place for God's uh, wrath. In, in the sense of his intolerance of everything imperfect and unclean and sinful, even if that is still a kind of a future prospect. So I don't know if that helps or confuses people more, but that's my two cents on God's uh, everlasting wrath, just as uh, just his everlasting love. I believe his everlasting uh, wrath as well. So that's that. Uh, I, this is already over 15 minutes, is it? So I don't want it to go too far. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave it at that. Well, God bless you all.